Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. Welcome to the Merrick's Podcast. I am Claudia Wessling, Director of Communications and Publications at Mercator Institute for China Studies. And today I am joined by Jörg Wutke. Jörg is the Chief Representative of BASF China in Beijing since 1997, a long time. And he served as the President of the European Union Chamber of Commerce in China for almost a decade. So he's definitely the perfect expert for our topic today, which is called negotiations in China. So hi, Jörg. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. You're talking to a fossil. And yes, it reaches back to the last century. You negotiating in China. It's going to be fun. <laughs> yeah, looking forward. Um, Jörg, when thinking of China and negotiations, it is almost unavoidable to Remember the famous strategist philosopher Sun Tzu and his world famous military treatise, The Art of War, because this is uh, oftentimes mentions when talking about ch negotiating with Chinese counterparts. Cliche goes that this work created around 500 BC during the late spring and autumn period until today guides and shapes Chinese negotiation strategies and tactics. Uh, would you agree with this or is this nothing but a prejudice? Or cliche? Well, it's a good starting point, and people always try to have something which reaches way back. You know, remember Kissinger and Zhou Enlai. When Kissinger was asking Zhou Enlai what he thinks about the French Revolution, uh, and Zhou Enlai said, Well, it's too early to tell. And uh, Kissinger assumed it was seven, 1789, but uh, Zhou Enlai actually meant 1968. So, you know, People like to have this kind of uh, wow effect by going for 500 BC. The Chinese figured it out, and we still haven't figured it out. But uh, let me let me tell you that I guess that uh, it it actually has a couple of good points in there um, in order to uh, prepare yourself. Um, but it helps also to read other books, and I come to this maybe at the end. Um, I have been negotiating, particularly with BSF, uh, since 97 to 2000, a major project in Nanjing, and uh, we had definitely a couple of experiences that I could pick up from Sun Tzu. One of them was, uh, after a good rest, uh, wait for the exhausted enemy. That was uh, strategy number four. And then number 16, to catch something, one has to release it. And number 17, give a break and receive a jade stone. I mean, just put yourself in my shoes at that time uh, with my colleagues. Most of them came from Germany. Uh, the negotiation team was vast. Uh, we had 175 rounds of negotiations. The core team was 45 people. And of course, we did it mostly in Nanjing. So we suffer from jet lag and we suffer from time differences because after negotiations, the Chinese went home. We went to the office in order to uh, put our minutes together. And then, of course, there was the language. So in a way, uh, we had this incredible exhaustion always that my particular my colleagues were suffering and um, we had definitely a different way of looking at this. Uh, 
uh, it was probing, uh, it was uh, reruns of negotiation teams. It was all about basically we negotiated with one team and then another popped up at another time. We had to do this all over again. And of course, the Chinese were uh, looking at the differences between how we responded. Uh, that was very different team to team. Uh, the, the top team always remained the same, but the rest was really like revolving door. So in a way, uh, it, it, is, it is something that it was definitely an experience. How did you cope with that? I mean, that sounds incredibly complicated. Everyone tired, different teams, uh, contradicting messages. How did you at the end c come out with something that, uh, well, that you liked or that, that you could live with? Well, I mean, it was really um, uh, something that turned out to be the most or one of the most profitable German-Chinese joint ventures, 50-50, uh, still running. We have expanded it. It's actually a showcase. Little did we know at that time it's going to be so uh, wonderful because uh, we also, of course, ran into the Asian financial crisis. So we didn't just only have uh, uh, negotiation headwinds, but also we had the capital markets asking us if we're crazy of putting up $3 billion into an unknown territory at that time was called Chinese. I think how we cope with this one was basically some of us really uh, had good coaching. Uh, some of us had really uh, people training us in our team in order to go in there. And uh, uh, basically the war picture that you uh, came up with uh, uh, instilled a little bit of fear in people. You know, oh, this is uh, something that uh, is going to be difficult. But frankly, the Chinese were suffering more under fear because for them it was the first ever huge joint venture with the foreigners. Uh, actually, they were uh, different teams negotiating same time with BP and Shell and others. And they were afraid that they are being uh, basically taken advantage of. They were inexperienced for this kind of complex negotiations. There was the political fear about uh, uh, getting found out that they have given too much to foreigners. And that's why, in a way, uh, it was us uh, against the Chinese people uh, negotiating that. Uh, what helped us definitely to get through the whole thing was to know they are very different. And we accepted this. We respected our counterparts. We knew that they are going to basically negotiate holistic. We're going to negotiate linear. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. I mean, that's um, some people over here often have this notion that, oh, when dealing with Chinese, they are just so strategic and tactic. Oh, my God, it's not going to work out. Yeah. But you always have to put yourself in the other uh, group's shoes. They are also afraid of things. And the negotiation is not top down. It's actually something that happens uh, uh, sort of on eye level, right? Um, Jörg, yeah. um, I mean, uh, getting back to this cultural thing that people often talk about, yeah, the Chinese are so cunning, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Sunzi is also popular outside of China and even Western CEOs uh, are probably familiar with some of the concepts and apply similar techniques in negotiations. So uh, would you say it really still holds true today that negotiation strategies are culture specific? I mean, we live in a globalized economy, in a globalized world. Do, do people not all apply similar strategies when approaching negotiations? What is your take on that? I'm, I'm sure, actually, that we do have cultural differences uh, and we just have to be Uh, very aware of that. Um, we uh, have to be just uh, uh, assuming that they do it in their own uh, social context, uh, in their own language, in their own experience. And uh, 
So in a way, the, 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 the answer we found to this one, so we do ours in our cultural context. Uh, um, in a way, we were not trying to out-Chinese the Chinese. We were just trying to be uh, uh, humble enough to understand that they are different, but uh, we stick to our linear approach uh, that we had, meaning that we go went step by step, which we could also then basically relay to our headquarters. I mean, you not you don't negotiate in an empty space. You actually have a, a counterpart, but you, then you have. A, all your lines back home that have to understand what you're doing. So the warning I would give is don't become Chinese. Um, also, uh, for the Chinese, knowing that we're Germans, that we are more straight in, in what we are doing um, uh, in our linear approach, uh, uh, actually, they, they have to trust that, okay, these guys are also different. They live different, but we find a common way. So we, we are look, trying to be shifty in a way in, in trying to come up with uh, solutions that we think uh, we picked up culturally in the 500 before Christ. Uh, we were definitely trying to uh, deal uh, deal with this one. The, 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 the counterpart negotiation, the cultural thing was also not just cultural, it was also political because uh, they were constrained, again, the fear factor by government agencies. Sinopec, uh, our con uh, counterpart, uh, definitely had to report uh, not only given the size of the project to Minister of Commerce, uh, uh, to the Planning Commission, to the State Council, all the way up to, at that time, Prime Minister Zhong Ji, uh, so they, they had to be very cautious of how to negotiate, but they also used it to their own advantage by actually putting up these people and saying, oh, you know, prime minister thinks that, the minister wants that, and so forth. A, a problem we never had, we never asked Helmut Kohl or anybody in, in Rheinland-Pfalz in order to give us some ideas of how to negotiate. Government agencies were a real problem for the other side and a real advantage uh, that uh, they had to negotiate. And then we have local challenges. We negotiated in Nanjing, uh, totally inexperienced. Uh, they had environmental question marks of what we're doing over there because SARPEC had a bit of a track record of not doing proper things. So they assumed we'd do it worse with our Chinese partners. So it was a complex uh, matter there. So culturally, yes, we are different. And yes, we acknowledge this. And just think about it. That time, there was really no rule of law. Uh, it was uh, something where uh, the Chinese were just evolving a legal system. So in a way, sometimes I felt like uh, Shell, BP and us, uh, we were setting the stage for new legislation uh, in order to capture things that we were evolving. And cultural specific, of course, at the end of the day, the famous Guangxi. Um, you know, the relationship that you try to have with someone who you trust, uh, a third person, a nice dinner and another dinner, and then a couple of Mao ties on top of that uh, in order to gain friendship. And maybe alcohol loses the tongue, but you really have to be careful whose tongue they lose. Um, and maybe to briefly explain to listeners, this was about a big plant you were building in Nanjing at the time, a cracker plant. Um, yes. Experts know what this is. I, I, I have to admit, I don't really <laughs> know what this means, but... Um, it was a, a what we call in German the Verbundzeit. It, it was something where we negotiated a couple of uh, chemical sites interconnected. Size-wise, it was about $3 billion. And so, uh, hence, it explains the big teams. And uh, we had definitely uh, the market in view, but the market uh, was definitely challenged by the Asian financial crisis. It is, it is the upstream of a chemical process. At the end of the day, uh, it ends up in all kinds of plastics. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. Um, 
maybe getting back to, to the Chinese counterparts. So taking into account that they are politically more strongly intertwined with certain government institutions. That's a difference to Germany, definitely. And then this personal um, aspect also of getting to know people personally, having a drink together is important to make negotiations a success, probably. Um, if there is, I mean, th th that really clearly shows there is something specific about negotiating with Chinese counterparts. Um, what would you say, how can Western players today prepare and deal with these specifics to, to be successful and also maybe taking into account that uh, your big negotiation was back in the 90s maybe things have changed today yeah i guess that uh, not much has changed well the legal circumstances have changed uh, we still have the government sitting at the table invisibly uh, sort of giving some hints here and there um, but uh, as a matter of fact uh, it, it has uh, changed little uh, our counterparts uh, to some extent speak English so we we save 50 percent of our time um, and technology helps of course uh, that we, we can do it differently uh, with emails than we had the telephone and the night shifts that we put in in order to get ready um, but I guess uh, one thing I, I really would like to also stress over here is um, we, we learned how to uh, decipher Chinese requests. Again, uh, holistic. What do I mean with holistic? Um, it was sometimes tiptoeing, the Chinese side, tiptoeing around a topic and sort of probing of where we are, where our soft spots are, where they can, can keep pushing and where they find that basically uh, BSF is not going to move. You know, tiptoeing around it also meant that they are uh, aware that we are thinking in linear terms, you know, one problem after the other, one step after the other. So time and again, we came across very weird requests. Uh, I call them looking back artificial obstacles. It Could is you give an example, Jörg? It is, it is something where, uh, for example, in the, in the, the Sun Tzu says, you know, give up an unimportant positions. I call it a BRICS. Uh, and to win important issues, that's what you get a jade stone for. Give up uh, a unimportant position in a way um, means putting up bricks is something like, oh, um, uh, there is this, this land issue. There are these people living there and they have to get compensated. That will be difficult. There's a cemetery on the land. You want to build the plant and so on and so on. We knew exactly from others that, yes, there is emotion. This can be dealt with. We do this all over the world in order to have a socially acceptable solution. But they really played this up hard time. Also, the payment issue. You know, at that time, uh, uh, payment for staff, Chinese, uh, Western, was huge differences. And they wanted same payment for Chinese as well as Western Uh, um, uh, colleagues. Uh, of course, I mean, that sounds fair, but at the same time, the market was totally different. We had to fly in expats and they had the people on board there. So in a way, uh, they played this hardball, you know, um, and uh, so we, we accommodated uh, to some extent, but we realized they put up a position actually that was not really an obstacle. They wanted the plant, they wanted us, they knew we're socially responsible. And then uh, we, we realized that uh, Uh, they they wanted uh, something on a different field, a supply contract on uh, on raw materials, you know, where uh, they couldn't make money. So in a way, they put up these social things and and uh, uh, personnel issues. Uh, 
But at the same time, uh, we realized at one stage, actually, uh, they were really eyeing at uh, supplying us raw materials at a much more advantageous uh, formula for, from their side. So after we realized this, uh, we found a mechanism, which I will not disclose, uh, in order to give in partly visually with all kinds of uh, um, I would say now b b banks and bells and whatnot noises on the personnel social side and and we played a little bit hardball on the supply contract uh, um, in order to really indicate uh, the jade stones that you want from us. Uh, it's going to be really very difficult and very dear for you to get. They are also our jade stones. So we played. They played up the bricks. We somehow uh, pushed them aside and uh, we didn't give away jade stones. We shared them at the end. So this is, you would you would argue, still a situation that one might encounter today when entering a negotiation with a Chinese counterpart, that they would like, well, make certain arguments or, or challenge certain points. Um, If you come across something which you find is not really relevant, um, uh, but uh, they play it up, uh, it smells like they want something else. So they, they play hardball on something which makes you puzzled about, uh, you know, why are they drumming this up and what's so important? It's difficult for yourself. So it's not just something you can push aside and say, okay, then have it. You know, they know exactly it's going to be hard uh, for us to accept the fact that, you know, uh, we would not honor market con conditions, meaning foreigners get paid the same as Chinese nationals at that time. But they knew exactly it's going to be an emotional issue for us. Yeah, it's fair, you know. Um, so in a way, uh, we had to find a good solution there, but we knew exactly that uh, it, at the end of the day, uh, uh, show me the money. You know, you have to see exactly where the Chinese side has an interest in the money. They might camouflage it, they might play it low key, but at the end of the day, cash flow and, and the, the, the monetary rewards is what they are after. You have to define it and just try to smell what has been uh, come up uh, to negotiate this away. I can imagine that takes some training and coaching and really um, yeah, meticulous analysis um, of the other person's position, um, which is natural for negotiations. Um, we've talked a lot about business, uh, Jörg, but you also served as the president of the EU CCC, the EU Chamber of Commerce in Beijing. And uh, in that position, you were, you've had a lot of contacts to politicians as well. Um, yeah. Do these notions about negotiations in business also hold to apply to politics is there or is there maybe going one step further anything politicians can learn from business makers when they negotiate with china especially in these times where um, relations are sometimes strained and not so easy anymore well i think there are lots of similarities far far more than they are back home in our systems because after all this is a political economy Uh, so uh, SOEs in particular are constrained by political masters, as well as political masters, of course, uh, have a very thin eyes to walk on in order not to be uh, accused of giving away things uh, to foreigners. So, yes, uh, it is something where it is different. The thing that I always try to relate to visiting dignitaries and, and uh, politicians coming in or when I meet them there and they you know, want to have my counsel on how to negotiate with the Chinese is avoid the lion mouse syndrome. Don't get on the plane uh, in, in Germany, in Frankfurt, and roar like a lion in your public announcement, meaning like, oh, you know, I'm going to bring this forward and I'm going to be basically the one that uh, is going to succeed with the Chinese. And then once you're here, you enter the negotiation building 
building and you uh, don't enter as a lion, you enter as a mouse. You know, you become really, really small. Be authentic. Uh, and the most authentic politicians I ever came across here was Angela Merkel. She was exactly saying how it is that she went in there. She didn't let anybody derail her agenda. She was sticking to her speaking points and, and she she was very quiet when she left Berlin and ended up here also being very real uh, when she had. Uh, so in a way, uh, because many of these politicians, particular Anglo-Saxons, once they leave the negotiations and they have a press conference announcing this incredible success they just in, uh, negotiated, they say, oh, we did this and we managed this and we finished it off and we got this kind of uh, agreement. We are, you know, we are the masters, you know. And for the Chinese, this was very predictable because they said, oh, come on. They came in as a mouse and, and they were very happy about it. That's what they sold to their domestic audiences. Merkel never did this. She said clearly, you know, I've achieved A, B and I didn't achieve C, D uh, and E. And uh, basically she could manage expectations very well. And I think that's really what matters. So, again, avoid uh, uh, being grandstanding before you go in and enter as a mouse uh, and then come back and trying to sort of uh, indicate to the Chinese the little they gave, the crumbs that fell off the table is good enough. Good advice for politicians today. <laughs> Thank you, Jörg. Um, is there any question I forgot to ask you or anything that you think is worth mentioning? No, I just maybe finished today by just uh, indicating on, on how to maybe uh, prepare yourself. Um, uh, and maybe I can also briefly state where I learned all of that. I learned it from the Japanese. Uh, I, I was lucky enough uh, with AVB in the 90s uh, to make a major project um, uh, with a, a Japanese a trading house uh, uh, at that time, Arubeni, and uh, I all of a sudden was aware on how they prepared themselves. They were totally diligent down to the detail to understand their own bit, their own offer they had to the Chinese. They were mapping the Chinese counterpart, be it government, be it company, be it relationship, uh, to an extent which is mind-blowing. The kind of preparation that went into it was unprecedented and told me something about uh, these Japanese trading houses doing their homework to an extent and keep doing the homework Uh, even if they don't negotiate, just to have a database, just to have the understanding of uh, basically who does what with whom. Uh, and I guess that maybe also in Merix you have some of these expertise and maybe for companies it would be good to pick into this one. The second uh, uh, make, uh, recommendations I would have is that uh, go in with the Chinese proverb, two ears, one mouth, talk less, listen more. Uh, try to pick up uh, uh, what has been said. Listen to your Chinese colleagues of what they picked up. Uh, always have a note taker. Don't ever use the translator as a note taker. The translator is busy. The note taker has to listen to both, you know. And then the other one is endure silence. It's just like, you know, we don't, we can't endure silence. Chinese can. They just stop talking and are silent. And you then just say something, you know, and it might exactly be the wrong thing and they can read your mind. It's just if they are silent, maybe you're silent, too. Um, and uh, what I learned from Charlene Bashevsky when she was negotiating from uh, with Zhong Ji in the late 90s on WTO, um, she had the ability of standing up from the table and leaving. She just left. Uh, checked out from the hotel and the Chinese realized she actually means business. They stopped her and put her, drove her to Zhongji in the Great Hall of the People and they finished the negotiations. So if the going gets tough, uh, don't just be squeezed in. 
Uh, Chinese are very capable, at, at least at that time, uh, to negotiate uh, the important parts before a public holiday, before a weekend, before Christmas, and they know exactly that our guys want to finish off, they want to be home with the family, uh, just leave and, and say, you know, we, we come back. And there's one man that I could recommend with his wonderful book, and he was a associate with you for a brief period of time. Uh, my old friend, uh, Vijay Gokala, who was uh, Indian ambassador to China and then state secretary and foreign minister of India for a while, wrote the best book, I think, on negotiations. It's called The Long Game, uh, how India was negotiating uh, with China. It's painful to read at one stage how the Chinese took advantage of underprepared Indians. There is Vijay telling the story as it is, and the last chapter just says it all. Basically, that's the fast track learning about how to deal with Chinese counterparts. Yeah, that's definitely a very great book. And um, actually, to our listeners out there, um, Vijay Gokhale has also provided a text on how Indians negotiated with China for, on our website, and you can read it there. Um, Jörg, <laughs> so far, thank you very much for your great insights, um, recommendations that people can listen to over and over again uh, to prepare for future negotiations. Um, I'm wishing you all the best over there in Beijing. Thanks for your time today and hope to see you, you soon. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makata Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org. <laughs>